even if an organization is on their pathway to being more diverse, I'd say you probably should try to get more psychological safety in before you work on the diversity. Because if you're inviting difference into the room, then you should be prepared to welcome it and embrace it with that delight. Hi, everyone. This is Tim Clark. I'd like to welcome you to our latest episode of Culture by Design. I have with me Love Odi Kamui, who is founder and culture engineering officer at Unsiloed in New York, but they have operations throughout the world in many places. Love, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tim. Super excited to be talking with you today. <laughs> I'm delighted. We're going to have a great conversation. Let's talk about love. Let me give you a little bit about her background. It's a pretty incredible. As an attorney and equity, inclusion, and justice scholar practitioner, she founded Unsiloed with a singular mission to help organizations make psychological safety and human rights part of everyday culture for everyone. As a two-time immigrant, we're going to talk about that. We've got to talk about that. As a two-time immigrant, she understands firsthand the challenges of being othered we also have to talk about that because other, the noun, has been turned into othered as a verb. So I would like to understand that more. And she's keen on using creative spaces that feel accessible. Formerly an associate dean at Cornell University, Love worked in dynamic capacities with corporate organizations, including the United Nations Development Program, the U.S. Peace Corps, law firms and universities across the globe. With 15 years of experience, interdisciplinary experience, and it really is, utilizing law, policy, education, and research to help organizations engineer inclusion, she believes with 100% certainty that when we create workplaces where it's not too expensive for employees to be themselves, innovation abounds and everyone wins. Love, what do you do in your free time? <laughs> <laughs> You are, wow, amazingly productive. And the first time I met you after that, I thought my first impression was, here's a woman of great capacity, great ability, great initiative. This is really quite amazing. So let's go back. We, we need to hear a little bit about your story. Okay. Two-time immigrant. Trace some steps for us. I feel like it's only recently that I recognized well, not quite recently, maybe in the last five to 10 years, it's like recognize the power of that experience. Hindsight <laughs> gives you some wisdom. Certainly navigating new spaces growing up was not quite a joy, right? Like there's no novelty of traveling and changing spaces. But growing up, my dad is and was a, a missionary working across boundaries. And so origin story, born in Nigeria. But while mm. born in Nigeria, if anyone knows Part of the history of Nigeria and West Africa post-colonial. There's a lot of divisions around tribes. So I was predominantly raised in the North, which is predominantly Muslim and, and, and tribally very different from where both of my parents are. So I would say even within the country, I was living very much outside what tribal and religious bounds are. And I would say I would say as young as five, I was quite aware of what those differences were or spaces in which religion and tribalism really made very harsh divides in society. So I think that was probably my first place of awareness of how difference shows up. And you were very sensitive to that from a young age. Yes, very much so. But I also had the privilege of having parents who really valued this cross-cultural appreciation. So if I were to even fast forward a few years, coming to the United States at some point, but learning maybe like anti-Muslim hate. Mm -hmm. For me, even though I was very different in that society, did not experience it as negative, but like experienced it with the light of how different it was and was quite curious about it. And at some point I started learning some words in Arabic <laughs> quite young, but like out of delight. <laughs> you said a word that I want to go back to, delight. You were delighted with the differences. Interestingly, yes. <laughs> Is that, that's amazing. 
Yes. So you're framing the differences. They're delightful. They were. So that right there is a massive insight. And that's a lesson for all of us. Do you see the differences? Do you perceive the differences as delightful? Keep going. Yes. So (laughs) a few years later, we moved across the globe to the beautiful country of Jamaica. And I also identify with lots of pride as Jamaican because of how long I lived there. And that was quite a different culture, racially very similar to Nigeria, but culturally quite different. And now I was across the Atlantic and taking a historic lens now with folks who are considered descendants of slaves or enslaved people. The cultural and historic landscape, the sense of resilience or the sense of how grounded people were, what made them feel connected or disconnected was very different from, again, where I was raised. And this is where I ended up attending high school and pursuing some of my higher education years. So I think that was my first in maybe a more conscious state of trying to enter a new cultural space and navigate difference that physically looked the same. So while my first one was like maybe a religious difference where seeing people in hijabs or worshiping differently than I was, I remember moving and seeing someone that looked very much like an uncle and just like, oh my gosh, like, did Uncle John move here? <laughs> like physically, like a replication, but mm-hmm. culturally just different. so different. So that was another mm-hmm. type of difference that I had to navigate, but also a difference that I think significantly shaped my life. I simply just can't imagine what I would be if I just did not have the quality of relationships and friendships that shaped me in that culture. Mm-hmm. I remain deeply grateful to those experiences and those people who I would say are friends to begin family. So from Nigeria to Jamaica to the States, beyond what most people will ever experience, when you went through those cultural transitions, did you like doing that? Was that painful? Was it exciting? How did you experience those cultural transitions? Because you would have what I would call cultural resilience based on those transitions. How was it at the time? Was that exciting? What would you say? I would say exciting. And (laughs) if I were to be truthful, the probably the hardest thing was people getting around to the fact that my name was Love, which there could be a scientific experiment about someone who moves around the world with such a name that has universal application. So maybe that opens some doors in terms of people also being curious about me as well. Uh But I, I will say that for a long time, I would say I struggled with attaching myself too quickly to spaces that I would enter because maybe as a child, assuming that my parents would probably uproot and go again. Um, I would say it took me some time to come to terms with settling in and finding home, whether that was at an academic institution or at the workplace. I think I may have over-embraced how transient life can be, whereas maybe some people get in and they make connections really quickly my need to find a sense of trust and stability before I got comfortable and settled in was probably (laughs) at a higher bar than most folks, right? So maybe it took you longer. Yes, yes. It took me longer because I, maybe I had seen change so much that I could appreciate things for what they were, but if I needed to move on at some point, I wanted to protect myself that I could detach quickly Mm -hmm. without feeling much harm to myself because I may have in some way felt that harm of just having to detach and move on. I mean, and I do think of that even in my work today, I sometimes look at the lens of what does someone who is really new here or unattached to this place, what do they need to feel comfortable to speed up that getting them comfortable quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I do understand what it was. I doubt that there were many people in the environments that I entered thinking intentionally about how to absorb me or how to make me comfortable and find home. They were just living their lives. And I was the one who had to either plop myself in there or find a way to get comfortable and to find my space and sense Mm -hmm. of belonging. 
So you get here, you get to the States, you become a lawyer, you've worked with the United Nations, you've worked with corporations, you've worked with all kinds of organizations, U.S. Peace Corps, and you founded Unsiloed. First of all, let's talk about the name. Tell us about <laughs> the name and how you landed on that. Ooh. So the name came to me <laughs> quite a few years ago, and I, I held it quite close to my heart. I was actually working back at the um, United Nations um, Development Program. There was a project happening around gender inclusion. And quite a bit of folks were collaborating and presenting their various reports and like initiatives. And because it's such a large organization, there was such good work going on in various agencies and departments, but they were all happening in silos and they had recognized, oh, we actually replicated this thing, whereas we could have added to or collaborated with you. I just remember I was quite junior then, like listening to these reports and listening to people share and someone sort of like burst out in like frustration. If there was ever a world that we could literally just unsilo all these things <laughs> that we are uh -huh. doing, we could have been working together and have had really excellent outcomes, right? Like we would all have been supporting all these inclusion efforts. There was like a piece of research here. There was a country initiative there. There was a strategic plan there. And this was probably the first time that they all were in a room just sharing best practices and, you know, learnings. And it just struck me. So what is the future state of not having silos? And I also deeply recognize how difficult that is because we all are, if you will, trained to think in silos. We go to school, math happens here, and grammar and English happens here, and we learn to compartmentalize our brains for functionality. Mm -hmm. and To get organized. To get organized, right? So it's very yeah. productive to some sense, but if you're trying to solve issues and concerns, around culture and people don't happen in silos. To compartmentalize issues as if we are not deeply interconnected is probably the most unhelpful way that we use our resources. To think that we are going to take care of hunger separately from mental health, separately from economic needs, those things are all interconnected. And if we're not talking together while we are designing solutions, then we're going to end up in that room of frustration, wondering why did we talk together before now? And why have we wasted so many resources trying to solve for things that could have been really fixed with some really good communication and collaboration? And while those things sound very basic, I think we learn them, but not so much the application of them. And maybe sometimes we get frustrated at the rigor that it takes to actually get together. So being a state of being unsiloed is not an easy thing to do, but I do think that it's helpful, productive, and probably gets us closest to the most rewarding future state that we're all looking for. Mm -hmm. It's not easy organizationally. It's not easy culturally. But to your point, love, and I couldn't agree with you more, solutions and innovation, almost by definition, they are multidisciplinary things. We have to come together. And then we're able to solve difficult problems together and make breakthroughs. So let's talk about the culture that is required to make this happen. So you work with organizations of all kinds to help them. And I wanted to focus on a few questions that I thought you could really help us generate some insight about. Organizations around the world are trying to create better cultures, more inclusive cultures, more productive cultures, more innovative cultures, and it's hard and they struggle. And sometimes they'll undertake a big effort, they'll launch an initiative and it doesn't go well. And so they have a false start, what we might call a false start. And as we look around, we see organizations that are littered with the remains of false starts. And so I wanna ask a question related to this. How do you convince an organization to make a fresh start when it's already had so many false starts? And what does that do? That breeds cynicism. 
employees get jaded, they lose their confidence and they lose their hope. So how do you help organizations? I'm sure you do this all the time, do a reset and find the motivation and the energy to do it when, you know what, the past efforts didn't go so well. Mm -hmm. That is unfortunately quite common. And I'll start by saying that one of the most unhelpful leadership advice that I see floating around is let's just hit the reset button and move forward. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I guess that that's mean? what I, that's what I'm asking. What does right. that mean? How do you do that? <laughs> right. And well, if reset means let's not talk about what happened, let's crumble up that old paper and throw it out a trash can and take out a new flip chart and start writing our strategy. Well, I'll say be prepared to fail and see it all crumble mm -hmm. up, right? Mm -hmm. You're building on faulty foundation. Yeah. You can't ignore the past. We can't ignore the past. You have a legacy culture. Yep. It is real. You have a history. It is real. You don't just magically press reset. You have prevailing norms that exist today and they're being perpetuated. So what do we do? Yeah. So what we do is from even a mindset standpoint, ensuring that we're not choosing what's comfortable and easy over what's courageous and effective. Leaders, I'd say, depending on how they might experience it, depending on their leadership style, may want to back away from the uncomfortable. And I'm sure you're a huge proponent of this, but vulnerability is just something that we can't bypass. And modeling the type of culture that we want to build is something that we can't bypass. So how do you get to that fresh start? I have brought into organizations just a different way to have conversations. What I've frequently seen is someone does a town hall and says, we're going to kick off our new approach and this is our theme of the year and all things are passed away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we know that that's not true. Right. And when you look to restorative practices, whether out of African cultures or native indigenous cultures, you'll see that people sit in circle. They sit shoulder to shoulder. No one's above anyone. No one holds superiority of power. There's wisdom in the room. There's some storytelling and there's some healing that can happen. Mm -hmm. There isn't complete resolution or maybe you can't undo some things in the past, but there is a level of sincere acknowledgement of what those harms are. So my process is acknowledge the false start, acknowledge the harms that may have happened in the past, and also offer a pathway for a co-created repair. And when I talk about harms, sometimes we think about harms through the lens of a quantifiable amount. So under law, tort law, or civil litigation, when we think of some sort of like discrimination, oftentimes the things that happen within organizations, I think fall in what I like to call this gray area of things that cannot be litigated or sometimes do not violate the codes within, the written codes within organizations. And that probably is where I started to see a desire to evolve my practice from this hard practice of law or waiting for an extreme savings to go really badly before we dish out compensation. But if you were to even pull from those legal principles, the principle in law says, to what degree can we provide compensation for people to put them back in the position that they would have been in had the harm not occurred? And I sort of like bring that piece of my legal brain along and I say in organizations, what can we do to restore relationships back to a place had the harm not occurred, where we felt wholesome, or how can we move forward to find a state where we are back there. And what we are looking at in those conversations are things like values violations or breach of trust or damage to our sense of community, which are things that, again, are so difficult to quantify, but those are things that we can name in the way that we practice this. We scale down from that big town hall, big microphone event, and we put people in smaller groups and we have these Within unsiloed, we call them conversations beyond silos mm -hmm. because we notice that when there has been that false start or maybe there hasn't been a strong foundation, those silos begin to build up. People armor up. People begin to protect themselves. They 
face themselves in their virtual or literal cubicles and they're just like, I'm just not looking next door. It's not worth it. I'm not taking any risk. I'm not going to extend myself beyond my job. And what we can do is begin to name those harms to begin to say, yes, there was a time when I shared or there was a time that I had a particular need and that need was not acknowledged. Or there was a time when I recognized that I was being treated differently from my colleague and and I raised that concern. Or there was a time that our leaders promised that part of our values would be ABC. And the way they showed up or the way my manager showed up was the complete opposite of ABC. And I was punished for it or ostracized for it. And can we really go back and undo that? Maybe not, but we can show some empathy to say, yeah, I would like to acknowledge that the way that I showed up as a manager was out of alignment with our values, that I was out of integrity. And this is what I'm doing to show up differently. Can you make space for us to actually move forward? Or what do you need for us to co-create a new reality moving forward? Mm -hmm. And for me, that's what it takes. And there's hardly a timestamp on that, which sometimes people wish. <laughs> I've heard people say, how long would it take for, for everyone to be able to move forward? And I, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I go, yeah, well, yeah. as long as you have the mindset that you think there's a timeline <laughs> on how long they'll need to move forward, right? Because that process is gradual. And sometimes moving forward for some people is getting the clarity that that particular organization no longer serves them, that there is a complete values misalignment. And some people might see some folks exit and that may be the healing that they need um, mm-hmm. to be able to move forward somewhere. I think you're making a key point, love, because, well, first of all, you're pointing out that the law uses money as a restorative mm-hmm. instrument. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And it can address some needs, but It's certainly, there's more to do. There's a lot more to do. The money doesn't heal. It doesn't have intrinsic healing powers. And so what you're saying is we have to go back. We have to confront, we have to examine, and we have to acknowledge the past. And you use the word healing, which is not a word that we use very often in a a corporate environment. But for reconciliation, we have to come to terms with the past and Perhaps we normalize things in the past that were unacceptable. Absolutely. Right? So this leads us to a related question that I'd love to ask you, and that is, how do we approach marginalized populations, perhaps underrepresented populations that have been marginalized and perhaps feel that they still are marginalized? How do we approach them in the right way? because there's a lot of ways that we can approach them that won't work. How do we demonstrate, how do the powers that be, those who hold positional power, how do they approach these marginalized populations when they have not been approached in good faith in the past? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? I think this is a a practical question, love, Mm -hmm. that many senior leaders have. So... How do we approach people who have been marginalized in the past? Well, I like to think of the work of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, a literary writer who talks about the danger of a single story. And there are patterns. And unfortunately, there are many people who, when they share their stories of being marginalized, sounds uncannily similar (laughs) Mm-hmm. in other spaces. I can speak as a Black woman. There are many people who would talk about experiences of a Black woman in the workplace, maybe perceived as aggressive or too much. Them now having to silence themselves and self-censor as a way to appear less threatening. How that marginalization shows up then is probably a well-behaved woman who is probably more palatable. <laughs> Whereas someone else's trauma might show up with sort of more visceral knee-jerk reactions when there are conversations that happen. So there isn't quite a single story if you're talking about what happens on the individual level. On the individual level, I think it's about extending, I think 
you speak about it so brilliantly in your work when you talk about extending that inclusion safety to people. That is old. And oftentimes, because of biases, even without understanding the past marginalizations that people have experienced, what we do is withhold that inclusion because of the biases that we hold, or we offer a very controlled or managed version of inclusion because we assume that those people may not necessarily be able to navigate our space. They're so different. So for whatever reason, there is sort of a bi-directional anxiety that's happening. I love that. Let, let's say that again. A bi- <laughs> No, no, this is brilliant. A bi-directional anxiety. There is. So there are people who hold identities that have experienced historic marginalization, who are probably underrepresented in the workplace. They're stepping in, doing that scan, wondering, am I going to be welcome here? How does it go? <laughs> is someone right. going to say or do something or, you know, treat me like the office pet for want of a better word. And then on the other side, there are people who are probably overmanaging for how they show up, right? So the type of trust that we would extend and the inclusion and welcoming people in by saying, come sit at our table or here is what we do or here's how we do what we do is sometimes withheld whether consciously or unconsciously, I have an interesting story of, I mean, this isn't necessarily of the lines of marginalization, but I recall working at an institution where people have worked there for many, many years and they could easily navigate that space. And there was a meeting, a team meeting being held and the team meeting was going to happen at a conference room. Let's call it the Tim Hall, right? So everyone, we're going to meet at the Tim Hall. And I just remember on the way to that meeting, half of the new folks, including myself, were all heading to the more popularly known Tim building, which was 20 minutes in the opposite direction. And just experiencing this level of frustration that no one qualified the directions and how to go there because they're like, oh, we meet here all the time. So one of the things that I get quite particularly about is one way that people can think of extending that inclusion is to be mindful of when they use words like obviously. Well, obviously, this is all what we are going to do, or obviously, this is how this works. Well, what might be obvious for you, an insider, may not be quite obvious for someone who is coming in, who is new to an organization or who is new to a space. And when you use that obvious a certain time or quite frequently, it actually indicates that if this isn't obvious to you, then you are probably a little bit inferior because this mm. is quite common knowledge. So so it's it, like form of validation, very subtle, a, very mild. Absolutely. That's just one example of the, well, obviously we all do this, or obviously this is how this works. And it's those mild, subtle, it's less the, you can't sit with us or you're not invited here but it's those very subtle things that chip away at people's sense of feeling welcome or chip away at their ability to lean in and even ask for what they need. So I'll say there is organizations who always know every single thing <laughs> that someone will need, but if there's an openness that you can always come in, you can always ask questions. There's no questions that's too simple or too stupid to ask. Go for it. And you won't be devalued because you don't know where this thing is or where that resource is, because then it now creates a hierarchy of knowledge based on whether or not you are an insider or outsider. Mm -hmm. And that can create additional challenges for an organization. So it goes all the way down to specific words and very small, seemingly insignificant cues yes. and indications that people are picking up during their interactions and we're reading those yeah. because what we're talking about is the organizations coming back to you and saying, I want you to trust me again. Right. And that trust has been damaged. And then if you go and you say, Oh, we're going to do a reset. It's a clean, fresh start from here. 
but we're not making any effort to acknowledge the past and understand. You don't go from current state to future state like that. That's not the way cultural transformation happens. And so this reset idea that we're seeing, I think we have to be careful with that because we may be not conveying good faith and then we get ourselves into trouble and we come across as so very disingenuous. We're not on a commitment track and it's not going to go well. So let me ask you an opposite question, love. So based on all the client work that you're doing and all the leaders that you're working with, give us an example of where it's going well, where an organization or team is making really great progress. What can we learn or an example? Certainly. And maybe to tie it back to the commitment approach, right? What's going well is where we see leaders pausing to take a foundational approach rather than an additive approach. And that's something that is a core principle in the approach of the work that we do. We've seen where folks have said something has happened in the past or we started doing this work and it fizzed out or there was a major incident and people lost interest or lost trust. What I've seen go well is leaders not leaning into that action bias of saying, oh, so let's roll out five diversity trainings and everyone come in. Or sometimes I get a blanket, not wanting to even acknowledge what has happened and say, and now here, can I have a bias training? And I was like, why do you need a bias training? <laughs> like, what's happening? And just having to roll that back. And I've seen quite delight. Some organizations really turn things around. And one in particular that we did some work over the period of a year we are just high level of distrust, high level of people not being even sure that they would sign up to show up to these sessions because they didn't know whether or not they would go sideways. And what we did was really slow things down. We were like, we're not even here to information dump yet. Before we start learning new things, we have to even understand where we are right now, and where we would want to go. And in that particular team, I saw that leader show up as a full participant in these sense. And in our sessions, we like the benefit of having this, we see that companies like the benefit of having an external partner so that if you will, leaders in the room get to be a full participant in a session, that's if it's safe for them to do so. There are instances where we're like, well, if you're a senior leader, you probably should be in a separate session if there's a level of fear and distrust at quite a high level. Mm -hmm. But in that particular organization, the leader showed up as a participant, answered questions, didn't try to hug the mic and go off with platitudes and speeches. They just said, yeah, this is what makes me feel connected here. And this is how I feel disconnected here, just like you all. And this is what I'd like to see differently. And I wish we had this level of connection that we used to have back in the day, or how do we recreate this now in a remote environment? And experiencing them have this complete turnaround, not to a state of perfection, but to a state of increased trust, willingness to dialogue. And if you talk about the wins that matter, it's not quite attendance at a workshop, but the fact that people were now having conversations around feeling included and having their voice matter just at a regular side chat that was happening. And no one was running away from that conversation, even if they disagree. Agreement no longer being a point for people to feel scared, but being a place where people can recognize like, well, I, I see what you're saying and that's interesting. I still see it differently, but thanks for sharing mm -hmm. that level of intellectual friction yeah. happening without anyone feeling debased by mm -hmm. it. And something else that I find to be good is the transparency that leaders then show. And by transparency, meaning coming forward to say, we've heard and seen your feedback here are some of the recommendations on siloed made. Here are some of the things that we're trying. And yeah, in fact, these are things that we should have seen or acknowledged in the past. And maybe we got too busy. And I'd like to acknowledge life has been ridiculously frantic for the last two years, right? So we are trying to operate normally when there are significant stressors still affecting us. So having a leader come forward and say, Unsiloed did this audit and on a scale of one to five, we are really showing up at a two out of five, but here are the steps that we are going to take to get to a four within the next 12 months. And here's how I'm going to show up 
And here's what I need from you all. And what do you need from me so that we can be on this path together? And when I do see that level, that's what commitment looks like. And I'll also add this piece. And here's a budget that we're going to commit to doing this work. Openly. Uh, right, right. Budgets are a significant indicator of commitments, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because we know that people commit to their marketing and people do even commit a lot to risk management. And if we begin to think of psychological safety and inclusion work as preventative to risk management, then we probably would not have to be dumping that much money in trying to protect ourselves from future litigation because we would have been doing the work all along. That's right. We're not running breakdown maintenance anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Let's go back to your example, because I think that there's an important principle there. You talk about the leader that came to the training with some humility as a participant. So creating a culturally flat environment, I'm not hiding behind title or position or authority. It's not about status. I'm here. I'm a fellow traveler with you. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to sit here at this table with all of my colleagues here. And that's it. I would think that that reverberated throughout that organization because everybody's watching, they're looking, and there's that fundamental humility in approach. So I can't help, love, but come back to the model behavior of the leader as such a critical factor. Yes. I don't know that you can overcome, if the leaders are not behaving well, I don't know how you overcome that because they set the tone. And they have such a significant impact on the prevailing norms of the organization. Let me give you a situation mm-hmm. that you can respond to. We see this again and again and again. So we see organizations. So first of all, let's distinguish between diversity and inclusion. Diversity is a matter of makeup and composition. Inclusion is a matter of belief and behavior. So we see many organizations that have made great strides to diversify their employee populations. Great strides. And yet they're not any more inclusive for it. So they got part of the job done, but they haven't finished the job. So if you watch, you go watch the employees. So we're in a social setting and they will self-segregate based on natural affinity groups. It's a dead giveaway. So we still seem to be confusing and conflating diversity with inclusion. Now it's part of the same journey, but these are different stages in that journey. So do you sometimes find yourself working with organizations that have beautifully diversified, but they have not created a deeply inclusive environment? Do you see this pattern? And do you have any advice on that? So I have a bit of a theory. (laughs) I could be wrong here. Companies that are significantly diverse, but not inclusive, they're diverse by chance. It was by happenstance, right? Based on their geographic location, based on the jobs that they had to fill, and based on the labor that's available in the Mm. area, then they got (laughs) a diverse workforce, Mm. right? And if they aren't that diverse by chance, or maybe at some point they had made some efforts, but they're not inclusive, then they have a revolving door diversity. Okay. So it's going to be quite challenging for a company that appears to be diverse, but isn't inclusive to maintain that. And there's probably another scenario that I see or that is quite known in some industries, maybe like manufacturing or trucking, where there is, if you will, like a field or production staff of people who are, the ones who are producing, doing significant manual labor or packaging. And there's a bit of diversity there because based on the socioeconomic nature of the location of those organizations, that's who they get to fill the workforce. And oftentimes, my sense is that there's a larger ecosystem of diversity, marginalization that's happening in the communities where these organizations may exist that there is that level of diversity, but not inclusion. And I think Mm -hmm. even for companies who may have been able to maintain that, my sense is based on what the data is showing, Gen Zs who are coming in in full force into the workforce, we know that the data is saying that for 85% of them, diversity matters from 
not just the composition of the workplace, but to the degree that people feel included. So they will form a core part of that revolving door of people who will not be tolerant. And I'll say tolerant because we know that one or two generations removed from, you know, prior to now where there was significant racial and gender marginalization, people felt that they had no choice, right? So it's sort of like this diversity by force because based on the economic and the socioeconomic circumstances of the community, they had no choice but to show up, be silent and get a paycheck and go home. So if companies want to say that they got diversity (laughs) by those means, that's hardly something that they can fully take credit for. What I'm beginning to see is some companies making a lot of effort to recruit identities that were not typically represented within their organization. And I've had some conversations with folks who have then ended up in what I like to call a crisis of human interaction. That's my definition of a conflict. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Where there is now tension within the organization because people are not communicating well, they're not collaborating well. There's that anxiety of relating with each other. There's that anxiety of not wanting to give feedback because they don't want to hurt feelings, just very unproductive leadership. And my question to them is, so why are you trying to diversify your organization? Well, are you prepared to do the work to sustain that diversity? Because you might as well not do it because you're either going to have some problems down the road or you're going to be called out as being performative and you're just going to lose a lot of money in in your recruitment dollars or because you're going to have that revolving door. So people are going to stay and remain unproductive or people are going to come in, recognize what's up and cycle out very quickly. So it's quite unhelpful to anyone to live under any false pretense that you want to sustain demographic diversity for the sake of checking a box. But unfortunately, because there's been a significant level of awareness and there's people are feeling obligated to, I find that people are trying to get folks through the door. But what I do think, if the great resignation was not a concern enough, there will continue to be an exodus and a revolving door of people who hold marginalized identities who are no longer satisfied to be getting the wrong end of the sick and they're feeling much more empowered and much more aware of their value and they will be marching with your feet. Again, we live in a quite global world. People will be making note of this on public reviews. People will be naming it, shaming them for it. That isn't quite my approach to doing this work. But to take a performative approach without a commitment to inclusion can mm-hmm. probably land you in way more hot water than if you just left it alone. So if you're not committed, go ahead and let folks know that this is not a priority for us right now. We will get there in 2030 when United States population catches up with us and we have no choice. But just know that it really makes no sense for you to engage in performative action. And even if people aren't saying something, you're causing quite a lot of hurt and damage to individual lives. That's just unhelpful. Yeah. Much of this love is being accelerated because of the pandemic, right? Because the pandemic is a crisis and a crisis liquefies the status quo. And so it puts us into this fluid state and things can move faster. So for example, as you say, employee expectations, look at the millennials, look at Gen Z mm-hmm. as they flow into the workplace. They, my experience is, and as I talk to them, they go into the workplace, they expect psychological safety. They expect a deeply inclusive culture as a matter of em- term of employment. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> and if it's, if it's not there, they're going to bounce. They are. They're not going to hang around. That's how quickly the expectations are shifting. They are shifting right now as we speak. Now, let me, I want to go to another issue, which is, it seems that, and I think that there's a lot of empirical research that bears this out, that ignorance feeds bias. We fear the unknown And it's amazing to me that people can work together sometimes for years and they don't know each other. They have not become socio-culturally integrated. They even work on the same team. They work shoulder to shoulder. They log hours and hours and hours together over years and they don't know each other. This happens in workplaces all the time. Mm -hmm. We don't have bridges 
the ignorance continues to feed the bias and we're not making progress. So do you have any advice about how to remove the bias through simply getting to know each other? Sometimes the remedies, sometimes the solutions are breathtakingly simple. Yeah. Ignorance, I think, is certainly something that plays a role, but I'll offer maybe two others that are at play. I think a highly individualistic culture where sort of like that, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I'm here, I'm doing, so a very highly individualistic culture where the self and self-actualization is at the center of everything that we are doing. Whereas I think there is an evolution where people are thinking of collective psychological safety as do we all matter? So that's one. I think some people have been socialized as highly individualistic. And then there's the other part that divides us, not quite ignorance, but I would say quite an informed sense of bias. Some people have been socialized in cultures or subcultures, if you will, where there is fear of the other, right? So while I may have experienced that other through the light of my childhood eyes. And I'm grateful for being able to experience when I hear a different accent or when I see someone different from myself or even within my team, I'm quite delighted when I hear someone shares an opinion that's so different from anything that I considered before I joined the conversation. I feel really inspired and challenged by it. There are some folks who've been socialized that different is inferior, that not showing up as typology, whether physically or socially, is less than acceptable. And that also feeds a level of divide. So mm -hmm. they may not explicitly name this in a work environment, but especially in a diverse work environment, there are those shields and armors that people are holding up as their way of navigating that space and not necessarily extending the sense of community to others. So I would say my starting point to thinking, you know, why aren't we more inclusive was probably ignorance. However, I'm careful to be dismissive of people who are sometimes more intentional in the way that they exclude others or they limit their interaction mm -hmm. and also aware of others who just by virtue of their level of socialization have not experienced difference with that sense of delight. Now, what do we do about it? I think there are ways, like you say, to get people to behave until they believe, you know, before they've believed. And I'm always excited when folks, when we have dialogues or have sessions within organizations and first folks are like, I have worked with you for 10 years. I had no idea what your story was. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and it's incredible. But we've had to engineer that, right? So we okay. go in. So we have to help people with that. We have to help people and we have to design experiences. I know there's sort of like an uptick in everyone doing maybe diversity trainings online or just like watching a few videos or engaging the individual exercise of self-learning, which is important and has its place, but this work comes by practice, right? Like I can't just say, hey, Tim, be more friendly, right? <laughs> so some things that we do, two specific tools, is when we start a conversation, we don't have ground rules because I do believe that humans at their core want to connect. And <laughs> we ask folks, so what do you need today to feel more courageous to connect in this dialogue. I love that. And we have them name the values that they need. And for that particular group, <laughs> within the space of five to 10 minutes, we've co-created and documented, and that comes from a restorative practice of the shared values of for all of us today. And some people would say, I need some patience because we're facing a huge deadline and, and I'm a little bit distracted and exhausted. So if I come across a short, you know, it's not you all. I want to be here, but this is what's going on for me. So people begin to hear from others what they need. So that's a very specific practice that we use in the dialogues that we facilitate. The other practice that we then use, again, in engineering this is 
That's why you use the word engineering because that you're is. so intentional, right? It you're is so, so intentional. intentional. Yes. We can't just say let's you can't you can't just let people go. They're they're not doing it. Right. Yeah. As you said, if we've lived, if we've worked together for 10 years and I don't know your story and you don't know my story, whoa, hang on a second. We need a little bit of help. We do. We do. <laughs> so there's another conversation that has been a favorite recently because we've been talking a lot with organizations who are going through change and a lot of reorg and mergers and <laughs> re-strategizing that, that, that's happening. And people are experiencing not just change through the pandemic and the global change, but change within their organization. And because of remote work, not having access to connection. So experiencing change and just losing their grounding. So another practice that we pulled in, sometimes we use what in restorative practice is called a talking piece. And in one of the dialogues that we do around resilience, we ask folks to show up with an object that signifies a time in their life when they went through change and to just talk about that. They, they get to tell their story. So even for two minutes, I get to hold up a pen, a flower, a picture of a time when maybe when I lived in Jamaica or when I migrated, maybe I, and now someone is like, oh, I, I had no idea. Like a visual. <laughs> Yes, a visual, right? right? Yes. And we like this because people are at home and they get to possibly select something that is not detached from their environment because we know that folks are trying to prepare to show up at Zoom, disconnect from their home and just appear professional. And we're like, no, let's pull on something that makes you feel courageous. Tell us about this story. You know, people show a watch from a grandparent someone who was a migrant or a time when they had to move or they experienced major tragedy. And then we invite them to use that place of courage to remind themselves that you've been through change before and things may have felt totally out of control, but you have the capacity to navigate change. Now, this doesn't fix everything, but part of this work is empowering people, right? Back to me saying we can't just hit that reset button in the same way when people are experiencing change. We can't just say, well, let's all, like this is a plan and we're going live on March 1st. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> let's let's all ride. We have to recognize that people are experiencing this very differently. And how can we all lean in from a place of either storytelling or recreating some shared values to say, as we go through this change, what do we need from each other? Or how can we show up for each other so that we all can create some level of community support and I don't feel isolated like, oh, now I'm a laggard, I'm falling behind. <laughs> Seems like everyone's understanding how this works and I'm the only one who's not getting it. To help people understand that there is collective struggle, there is collective strength, and we don't have to be individualistic and isolated, that we can still, even through turbulence, have a sense of community and connectedness to move forward. Mm -hmm. Love, that's beautiful, man. You are hitting your stride. Let me ask you a concluding question as we wrap up our conversation. This has been incredible. Based on the work that you're doing, what advice would you give to organizations out there and to leaders out there? Now, you could give a lot of advice, but can you think of a pearl or two that you would like to leave with them? So <laughs> I've always been quite hesitant on advice, right? Because I'm like, mm -hmm. advice is based on my own lived experience, right? And so take this with as little or much grain of salt, if you will. Going back to that foundational versus additive approach, I'll say ensure that your work to create a more equitable and inclusive culture is not just additive stuff. You can't just add Black folks and add women and add a new ERG or a new committee and think that we're all going to ride off into the sunset. <laughs> There's nothing else to be done. Mm -hmm. That's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. We have to, one, probably repair old harms and rebuild that foundation to do the work well. And it will be worth your while. So that's probably at that organizational level. And then on the individual level, I'd say I'd like to acknowledge that companies might want to think of themselves primarily as 
well, we have a business, we are selling this good or this service, or this is our mission. And we're not a diversity company, right? So they're, they're like, well, we have other priorities, you know, finance reports and sales and this and that. And that's great. So ensure that in your wheel of priorities that you have woven through that diversity and your need to create an inclusive and equitable and a just culture is woven through all parts of your organization. It's not thought of as a siloed add-on side dish that we participate in once a month or once a quarter, but it's something that we can think about from how we procure our vendors to how we recruit or have we thought of how we evaluate folks? Have we offered access to coaching and mentorship in a way that feels equitable? How can we weave this through so that it's not just seen as HR's job or employee experience's job or some external consultant's job, but it continues to weave through our fiber? And while we can engineer experiences for people to behave until they believe, if you don't believe, you'll never be able to sustain it. Mm -hmm. So that's the part that they will have to take forward. (laughs) And on a personal note, right? So in the fray of this overwhelm of, oh my gosh, there's so much to do. Where do we start? It's gone wrong in the past. I'll say, do what you can with what you have, where you are, right? And also be transparent about what you can't do and say, hey, here's what we can commit to. We're starting here. We're going to have a few dialogues and this is what our budget allows us to do. Don't mount up a big diversity, anti-racism page on your <laughs> website, but then be out of integrity in your lived experiences. So do what you do what you have and what you can where you are. I think people do appreciate that authenticity and that vulnerability. And once you begin to model and show that up, there are so many low budget things that we, <laughs> when we make recommendations to organizations, we're like, here are five things that you can do right now with the smallest amount of resources that will have the greatest amount of impact, right? Like we're not asking you to redo your entire financial modeling, but there are some really basic things that you could really tweak. And we oftentimes leave folks with like, here are some really good practices that are working. How about you amplify them, right? Even before thinking about overhauling everything and burning it Mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. I think there are very important behavioral steps that people can take every day if we all actually believe that this is important because yeah, let's engineer behaviors, but except you want a consultant to forever live within your organization, you're going to at some point take on the mantle to move the work forward. Love, I'm just taking it in. Incredible, incredible insights. From this conversation, I have gleaned some insights based on some words. I want to summarize my takeaways for listeners, and you're going to have your own takeaways, but first word, delight that you've used, love, that different and difference is delightful. That's a frame that we need to embrace. That's number one. The second word is restorative. In order to do this work, in order to transform cultures and organizations, It's restorative work. And related to that word, you also used another word, love, foundational. It's not additive, it's foundational. So we have to go down to the ground. In some cases, it may be that we take out the footings and the foundation and we put new ones in. We don't just throw dirt over the top and say, we're going to hit the reset button. So it's restorative practices. And by the way, you've shared some concrete, powerful practices that we can jump into, we can get started immediately. Another word that you've used is access. And you've pointed out that through the pandemic, people have lost access. In many, many cases, they've been deprived of access to connection. We have to acknowledge that. And it's sustained, it's prolonged. We're going on two years. That's a lot of denial of access. And there's so much more, but I just wanted to highlight those because those have jumped off the page for me. They've jumped out of this conversation. And I'm so grateful to you for spending the time. An incredible conversation, love. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the impact that you're having on people 
and on organizations. It's absolutely incredible. Thank you for being with us. I'm so grateful for having to and honored just to be able to share with you. I know a lot of folks, myself included and my team, really lean into your work as part of that foundational piece. And for us, we like to say you can count diversity numbers all day, but if you don't have high psychological safety, then you're not talking about inclusion quite yet. So I'd say for myself and for many folks, the work of the four stages really offers that tangible metric-based approach to thinking about inclusion. The part, much like you said, we're no longer counting for bodies in a room because even if an organization is on their pathway to being more diverse, I'd say you probably should try to get more psychological safety in before you work on the diversity because if you're inviting difference into the room, mm -hmm. then you should be prepared to welcome it and embrace it with that delight. Wow, that is beautiful. Love, thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.